Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. We're glad that you're joining us here in class. If you're watching online, we're glad that you're joining us in cyberspace. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. I am filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings, who is this morning across the pond. Uh, he is speaking at the Stanborough Park Seventh Adventist Church in Watford, England which is just outside of London. Hopefully it's less crowded over there this weekend than it might have been this time last weekend. Um, He spoke last night. He's speaking uh, all day today and I think has a seminar maybe in the morning. Let's have a a word of prayer. We'll start last. Father in heaven, thank you so much for for an opportunity, a place to meet, and for uh, giving us such a revelation of who you are. We are praying for an outpouring of your spirit and for open hearts and minds and just an added measure as we study a book that that has sometimes been mysterious and scary, um, but as we come to realize it's just a revelation of your character, who you are, and the the links that you would go to show us how much you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're studying Lesson 10 in our quarterly preparation for the end times. The title of this week's lesson is America and Babylon. Much of this week's lesson is going to be centered on Revelation chapter 13. So if you'll indulge me, I want to start by reading that chapter from the Remedy paraphrase, which I've got to say makes Revelation make more sense than probably it ever has in my uh, half century of life. So Revelation 13 says... The dragon stood beside the massive sea of his followers. Remember, sea indicates usually peoples, peoples of the world. And while I watched, out of that sea of people arose a beastly power. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. Those symbolize political powers and a blasphemous name on each head, which symbolizes religious powers. It represented a conglomerate, religio-political world power comprised of multiple governments and false religions of the world. This beastly power arose from the vestiges of Greece, Persia, and Babylon, symbolized by a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And it received its power and authority from the dragon, which means it will use Satan's methods of deceit, coercion, imposition of law to distort God's character with pagan concepts. One of the seven heads received what appeared to be a fatal wound, but then the wound was healed, which symbolized a blow to its power and then recovery and a resurgence in power. The entire world was in awe and followed the methods, principles, and teachings of this beastly power. By accepting the pagan-imposed law constructs as representative of God's kingdom, people actually worshipped the dragon as these distortions about God originated from him. And since the beast used the dragon's lies as the basis for its authority, they were also worshipping the beast. They marveled, who can compare to to the beast? Some versions say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast had a mouth that boasted and blasphemed. 
and it exerted its power for 42 months, which symbolizes the manner in which this beastly system would misrepresent God's character and methods while claiming to have God's authority to speak for him on earth. It blasphemes God and misrepresents his character and distorts the reality of God's dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It wars against the saints with lies and distortions about God's methods and principles, teaching that God uses power like an earthly emperor to impose law, to lord over the people, and to inflict punishment for disobedience. It conquers the saints and infects the world, every tribe, nation, language, and people with its lies about God. All the inhabitants of the earth accept its distortions about God and thus give homage to the beast. All except those whose names have been recorded in the book of life that belongs to Jesus, the Lamb who committed himself to be the remedy to sin before the world was even created. Those whose minds are open to truth will understand. Anyone determined to be captive to sin will into bondage go. And anyone whose character develops upon the kill or be killed principle will in the end be killed. Overcoming the selfish drive to survive requires patient endurance and trust by those who are healed. Next, I saw a different beast arising out of the earth. It had two horns, like lamb's horns, but spoke like a dragon. This symbolized a new power arising in a different part of the earth that initially promotes lamb-like principles of freedom, but eventually practices dragon-like methods of coercion. As the first beast watched, the second beast exercised all the tactics of the first beast and led the world to practice its methods, thus giving honor to the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The beast required everyone to choose whom they would worship, symbolized by the miracle of calling fire down from heaven. Because of the astonishing act of restricting religious freedoms and the economic coercion that it was given power to wield, it duped the entire world. It commanded them to form a coalition of religious and political power to enforce its way which was modeled after the first beast's way. It had the resources and ability to bring this coalition into a living reality, a fitting model honoring the first beast. It even imposed a death penalty for all who refused to practice its methods. It forced everyone, weak or powerful, rich or poor, free or slave, to make a choice. Some chose to believe that the methods of the beast were godly, and these were marked in their minds. Some versions say foreheads. And what's behind your forehead? What part of the brain? That's the prefrontal cortex. These were marked in their minds or their foreheads to be like the beast. Others chose to go along with the beast for convenience and gain, and these were marked by the work of their hands. No one could buy or sell except for those who chose the methods of the beast and thus marked themselves as loyal by embracing its character and being numbered as its followers. 
This calls for wisdom. Anyone with spiritual discernment, let him count the number of the beast. It is a human number. The number is 666. So as we look at this week's memory text, it comes from Daniel 12.1. says, At the time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. When I read that memory verse, I'm reminded of Dr. Moses. Dr. Wendell is not here today, but he spoke, he taught the first lesson in this quarterly. I'm reminded of his discomfort with this topic of end time events and a time of trouble such like we have never seen before. I share his experience of having two parents who are now deceased, but who were firmly, devoutly convinced that this would take place during their lifetime. I also grew up with basements and pantries full of preservative-rich faux meat products in cans, enough to feed, I don't know, small armies, uh, I also remember growing up in this community and in this denomination and at times being very uncomfortable with some of the language used to describe other Christian faiths. And I was very reluctant to bring a non-Adventist neighbor or friend of mine to church with me for fear of what they might hear from the pulpit that would disparage their own religious practices, their family, their church. Anyone else? I see some heads nodding. In Sunday's lesson, the quarterly asks, how can we proclaim present truth in a way that causes as little offense as possible? I never really cared for the pitting or comparing one denomination against each other belittling or criticizing or ridiculing other denominations. So please know that is not my intention in teaching this lesson today, and I'm very sensitive to that issue. I don't believe anyone is saved or lost by the denominational membership that they hold. Uh, I think that the Holy Spirit can apply Christ's healing remedy to hearts and minds in any denomination, every denomination, or no denomination, Um, But I also believe that scripture points us to specific institutions and specific time periods and the specific roles they play in last day events. And by identifying and placing these powers and institutions, it helps us better position or figure out where we are in the prophetic time period that we're living in. So let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson talks about the deadly wound healed. This was the deadly wound that happened to the first beast that we just read about in Revelation 13, specifically in verse 3. They received a deadly wound. What was that wound? What do you know about that wound? Help me out. So the Roman church at that time... 
and centuries before had been the central religious power and the, the political center of the Western world for literally hundreds of years. But as we got toward the end of the 18th century, the 1700s, they were experiencing the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and specifically Napoleon dealt a blow to the Catholic Church at that time and captured and imprisoned the Pope in 1798. But then the wound is said to have healed, and that refers to the recovery and the resurgence of the, of the church in terms of political power, political influ- influence, and that is continuing even today. What are your thoughts about that? What are the typical results of uniting political and religious powers? What have we seen through history? Persecution. Persecution. And isn't that what we just heard woven throughout the entire chapter of Revelation 13? That this beast's power is representing their methods of coercion, force, fear, punishment as being like gods. And if we think back, there was another time frame in history when religious leaders were misrepresenting God so bad that the son himself felt like he needed to come and give us an accurate representation of the father to clear up some of the distortions that the religious leaders were putting out there. And we we know what happened with that. We're going to even talk about that a little bit more. Okay. Sunday's lesson was quick. Let's look at Monday's lesson. We're probably going to park here on Monday and Tuesday <laughs> for a bit. Monday's lesson is entitled, The United States in Prophecy. Did you know that we have a spot? We have a place in prophetic history. Around the same time as the deadly wound, which was near the end of the 42-month time frame, prophecy, another creature appeared. This creature was commonly referred to as the land beast because it rose up out of the land. There seems to be quite a bit of consensus and quite a bit of evidence on who this land beast in Revelation refers to. So the time in history was the late 1700s. This beast arose out of the earth, which is representative of a sparsely populated area in Revelation uh, symbolism versus the sea, which is densely populated with people. This second beast had, actually the third beast, lamb-like horns. These are believed to be representative of two governing principles that this country was founded on, civil and religious liberty. The beast had no crown. That's also labeled a uh, republicanism. That's with a little r, or a representative republic, and it means that it was a government without a king, no monarchy. And Protestantism, which represents a church without a pope. One of the founders of this church wrote... And he had two horns like a lamb. The lamb-like horns indicate youth, innocence, and gentleness. 
fitly representing the character of the United States when presented to the prophet as coming up in 1798. Among the Christian exiles who first fled to America and sought an asylum from royal oppression and priestly intolerance, were many who determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil and religious liberty. Their views found place in the Declaration of Independence, which sets forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws. Freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret to, of its power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. So this author seems to think that, and I agree with her, that our founding was miraculous and unique. And I think this country has been blessed by that. Um, I'm not sure that we are as aware of it now as we always have been. I think that may be... That may have to happen in order for what to come about that we know is going to come about to happen. Um, so I want to present you with a bit of a comparison. I want to show you some parallels and some evidence that this first beast in Revelation 13, the sea beast, is actually a parody or perversion of Jesus Christ. I got some of this information from a presentation I saw by Dr. John Laureen, who's a professor at Loma Linda University. The presentation was entitled, I think, United States in Prophecy. And uh, the reference is in my notes. There's a, there's a presentation you can watch. But I, I was skeptical, I'll admit, but I found these parallels, when presented all at once, pretty convincing and fascinating. And so first we probably need to talk about the or review the false or counterfeit trinity that is represented by these three beasts in Revelation 13. This was covered in last week's lesson, but it was covered in Thursday of last week's lesson. And if you attend this class often, you know that Thursday is also unicorn-like. We rarely get to Thursday. And I don't think we did last week either. And uh, I would not bet on Thursday this week either. Um, in fact, Wednesday's odds aren't really good either. <laughs> um, anyway, so but this information is in last week's notes, which are available on the website. But the most common interpretation is that the three beasts, the dragon, 
counterfeits God the Father, the sea beast counterfeits God the Son, and the land beast counterfeits God the Holy Spirit. So I want you to keep that relationship in mind as we go over some of these parallels between the sea beast and Jesus. So first, number one, the sea beast looks just like the dragon. The dragon is described in Revelation 12, but both had seven heads, both had ten horns, both had crowns, one had crowns on heads, one had crowns on horns. But Jesus looks just like who? The Father. He said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father and I are one. Number two, the sea beast does not have its own innate authority. It gets its authority from the dragon. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. By whom? By the Father. He said, I do nothing on my own. Three, this sea beast has a ministry of 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Who else had a ministry of three and a half years here on this earth? In Revelation 13, 4, it is said of him, who is like the beast? These are the people that were boasting about the beast. This is also a parody of Jesus. If you remember, when Jesus appeared on earth, he was often referred to as Michael. You know what the name Michael is in Hebrew? It's a Hebrew term that means who is like El, Mikael. And remember the Israelites proclaiming, who is like our God? The sea beast also had a death and a resurrection. So remember the deadly wound that the sea beast experienced? If you go to the original language, it's a wound unto death. And its deadly wound was healed. Now if someone dies and then gets healed... What do we call it? A resurrection. In verse 8, which references the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, you have the same word for death as is used in verse 3. Now there are four or five different possible Greek words for death and killing. But John uses the same word in both verses. And in both cases, the word is translated slaughtered. His head was, as it were, slaughtered to death in verse 3, and the lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world in verse 8. So the cross of Christ and the death of this beast are equated. He is a counterfeit of Jesus. Now, knowing what we know about how and when this great controversy began. What did it begin over? Who was Lucifer claiming equality with? Christ, Michael, the son. He didn't understand why he was not being called into heavenly councils along with Christ. So does it surprise anyone that in this, the end playing out of this controversy... 
that the plan would be still to be counterfeiting and representing himself as equal with Christ. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So this worldwide alliance will act like and dominate the world, just like the medieval church did. And the contrast and methods will be deception and coercion versus truth and freedom. You cannot get any more polar opposite. Also, the enemies of God's people at the end of time are the very same entities once thought of as God's allies. Think about at the end of time when you have a united worldwide Christian church and the United States of America being the enemies of God. There couldn't be anything more out of sync or more 180 degrees backwards. So how will this country transition from their lamb-like beginnings to speaking like a dragon and using his, care, his methods and his principles. So in Revelation 13:11, we just read this. Next I saw a different beast arising out of the earth. It had two horns like lamb's horns, but spoke like a dragon, which symbolized a new power arising in a different part of the earth that initially promotes lamb-like principles of freedom but eventually practices dragon-like methods of coercion. Mrs. White says such action, she's referring to this shift in methods, would be directly contrary to the principles of this government, to the genius of its free institutions, to the direct and solemn avowals of the Declaration of Independence, and to the Constitution. The founders of the nation wisely sought to guard against the employment of secular power on the part of the church with its inevitable result, intolerance and persecution. The Constitution provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof and that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Only in flagrant violation of these safeguards to the nation's liberty can any religious observance be enforced by civil authority. But the inconsistency of such action is no greater than is represented in the symbol. It is the beast with lamb-like horns, in profession, pure, gentle, and harmless, that speaks as a dragon. Does this give us any indication of what's going to have to happen in our nation, in our government, in the, I would say, the, the desires of the people electing that government in order for this to come to pass? Russell? I wouldn't speak of it as a future Event. Totally agree. Past event. It has happened. It is happening, and, and yet a little more to go. I mean, if if you if you if you're able to, to turn your mind around, think from the papacy's point of view. Mm -hmm. If if there was if there was a an entity that thumbed 
their nose at you and went and established their own nation. And that nation grew to be a, a world power, yes. uh, basically on principles anathema and, and, and completely antagonistic to everything you had you had developed over the last thousand or so years. You would you would work feverishly to undermine that entity by um, changing their immigration habits, changing their voting habits, changing their legislative agenda, by, by working quietly underground through, through agents, uh, um, secret agents, and, right. and um, the word I'm looking for. Spies. Yeah, uh, agent provocateurs, spies, the deep state, you know, whatever, however you want to phrase it, they would work feverishly to, to undermine that and to change the course of that nation to one that mirrors the one of your own. So, I mean, it's, it's hardly surprising now. That we, we, yeah. With that perspective, we really shouldn't be surprised anything's going on in our nation. And you might even change some of the, the precepts and concepts of your church yes. and the personnel representing your church so that they seem more in line with what has been so successful. I mean, I... T- you promote the... the uh, the church getting involved in political matters, whether it's uh, the right to life, or whether it's the euthanasia, or whether it's um, promoting climate change agenda, yeah. whatever, whatever it is, anything that, that gets the, st- the church to beg for help from a civil authority right. is, is an undermining of the foundational principle that our nation was, was uh, founded on. I totally agree, and I think that's one of the most profound things I got from studying Revelation 13. And like I said, just viewing my parents, every generation that's come along, convinced it was happening or going to happen in their lifetime. And as I read Revelation 13 now, I can't even look at it as a future event. You cannot, if you, if you remember, if you didn't look, watch last week's lesson or weren't here last week, please go back and, and look at the archive and look at the three or four uh, litmus tests or tests that Dr. Jennings presented of how you can test end-time deception. What, what can you put up against what is being presented to show you whether this is accurately representing God's character or inaccurately representing, misrepresenting God's character? And the big one is this penal substitution theory that God's law functions like human law. He is forced by justice or the law or he's just mad and angry to impose, punish, kill people who don't agree with him, who don't love him. This message is widely accepted by the worldwide Christian church. And if we, if we think, like I believe now, this is the wine of Babylon that is being promoted, we're not far away from it being a united message. And if you just take that out to its full extent, if you apply the law of worship, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, and you become like the God you worship, of course they're going to act this way. It's, it's what they think is right. It's what they think God would have them do because they want to be like him. Yes, Linda? And just look at entertainment. I, yes. I can barely recommend any religious movie. No. Because if you see any of them, 
they are tainted thoroughly by fraud. An, an angry God, a totally misrepresenting. Yes. The whole story was interesting enough that they embellish it to the point where you can barely recognize it. Yes. And they present God in a really bad light, Noah and and one where about Moses. The Noah movie was terrible, <laughs> terrible. I, I can barely recommend anything that comes out. And, and imagine people who aren't studying their Bibles. Exactly. That they're going through these movies. Exactly. And that's their only picture. This is the God they're being presented. Agreed. Only in flagrant violation of these safeguards to the nation's liberty can any religious observance be enforced by civil authority. Would you say there is a drift in this country toward a more gentle foreign policy or a more aggressive one? Some have called us, some have called the United States the reluctant empire. You might say, no way, we're not an empire. We don't go out and conquer countries. We don't control other countries. But we don't really have to, do we? Every action of the United States affects pretty much every other country on earth. And most all of them want or need to know, wait to find out what is the United States going to do. And everything we do for other countries comes with strengths. Typically. You know, we this, we give this, mm -hmm. then we expect something back. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. Them or we bomb them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this guy, uh, Captain Tom Mary, he came to this area. He's a physician, he was stationed, in, he was a, in the reserve station uh -huh. and pulled into action when we, when we took over Iraq. Mm -hmm. And um, he said something that really interested me. He said, he told his commanding officers who he asked to preserve. He found himself actually in Babylon and Ur and stuff. Yeah. And so he was telling the American uh, military, don't bomb these areas. You know, he was part of protecting those areas right. when we when we took over. But he made a remark. He told his commander, "We're the seventh conquerors of battle." Interesting. And I thought, you know, you, you don't really think of it that way, mm -hmm. but we shocked and awed. We took over yeah. and we conquered battle. But we have to also give America credit because if any catastrophe happens, we're the first country to help. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And like I said, I do believe our founding was miraculous. I think that we were put as a city on a hill. We were set up on these founding principles to be an example of what freedom and self-governance looks like to the world. And we have been. And like, I think like Russell said, it's one of the reasons why we're a target. Because it was so demonstrably successful. So... Is there a trend in this country toward greater freedoms and liberties or fewer? From what I see, there has been an ongoing and increasing tension between liberty and security. And I think it really ramped up after 9-11. If any of you are old enough to really remember the tragic events of September 11th and the aftermath, then you know what I'm talking about. And you can no longer doubt the imminent feasibility of what I always thought was a rather infeasible Armageddon scenario described in Revelation on a worldwide scale. 
The Battle of Armageddon envisions a worldwide unity against a small group of people hiding in the rocks and the mountains and the caves. September 11th showed us just how quickly this revelation scenario could happen. Overnight, the entire political realm, the entire religious realm in the world were united against a group of people that most had not even heard about the week before. That's how fast it happened. Basically, we watched a big chunk of the Revelation scenario play out in just a matter of days. And what happened after? Where did everybody go? They went to God. They went to church. All of a sudden, prayer was acceptable. Yes. Interesting. We're going to talk more about this Armageddon scenario here in a bit. All right, Tuesday's lesson. It's entitled, An Issue of Worship. The first paragraph states, All through sacred history, the Lord constantly had to deal with those who fell into idolatry and other forms of false worship. In the final crisis, as depicted in Revelation 13, the issue of worship will again arise. Here, too, God's people will have to make a choice about whom they will worship and serve. Will it rise again? Or has it always been about worship? So no, it has to be. Why? Because that's how life was designed. It's a design law. The law of worship. We become like that which we admire. We become like the kind of God we worship. So how will this issue of worship manifest itself in the final crisis or in the battle of Armageddon? Does anybody know what Armageddon means? Know what the word means? It means mountain of Megiddo from the Old Testament. Now, I don't think there's any mountain named Mount Megiddo, but if you go to the city of Megiddo, the ancient ruins of that city, there is a mountain right next to it. Anybody know what that mountain is? It's Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the place where there was a showdown between two gods, two types of gods. The true god... And the false god, Baal. What was to be the compelling sign of which one was the true god? How would the people know which god won? Fire would come down from the heaven and consume the offering on the altar. We've covered this in this class before, but repetition is good. Trust me, <laughs> it is for me anyway. What was the problem with worshiping Baal. What made Baal a false god? So it wasn't simply a matter of them using the wrong word, using Baal instead of Yahweh. It was something else. So Baal is a Hebrew noun, means master, possessor, husband. And the Israelites used Baal as a suffix for some of their towns. Baal Peor or Baal Berith. In general, it's a proper name in the Old Testament, and it refers to a specific deity, Hadad, 
the Semitic storm god, the most important deity in the Canaanite pantheon. Yahweh was master and husband to Israel, and therefore they called him Baal. In all innocence, but naturally this practice led to confusion and misunderstanding of the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal rituals. And it became essential to call him by some different title. Hosea proposed a word, another word meaning husband. The New Bible Dictionary, or sorry, the problem was not the syllables used, as Baal was one name used for the true God. So the problem must have been something else. There must have been some distortion presented in the character of Baal that is not in the character of God. And you folks have mentioned it. What was Baal like? Angry God. Angry. Required appeasement in order to either escape punishment or in order to obtain blessing. And was unappeasable. Yes. Could never get there. That's the the undercurrent that that you never hear talked about. Required appeasement, but yet it's unappeasable. Yeah. Why else would you burn forever? Yeah, exactly. Baal was the son of El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai. He was the god of weather, often called Almighty and Lord of the Earth. Baal was the god who brought the rain, the thunder, the lightning. He fertilized the earth, brought harvests, controlled the sun. Baal fought the great serpent, Leviathan, as well as battled against Mot, the god of death. And most amazing of all, it was taught that Baal died in his battle with Mot and was resurrected from the dead to bring life to the earth. Which sounds eerily familiar. So what was the problem with worshipping a god who was the husband and protector of Israel, the son of El, who controlled the weather, who brought rain, sunshine, and fertility, who blessed the full harvest, who warned against the great serpent and death, who died and was resurrected to bring life to the earth? What was wrong with this God? What was Elijah opposing? And what made worship of Baal false? This is from Prophets and Kings. She says, Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continue to offer sacrifices to their gods and to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth. With costly offerings, the priests attempt to appease the anger of their gods. And the Bible confirms this. So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their custom until blood flowed. Could it be that Baal represented the characteristics of Satan's version of God? The idea that he, as God, must have bloody sacrifices in order to be appeased, must have his wrath assuaged, or have his anger propitiated... And is God waiting for his church on earth to complete the Reformation by eliminating this pagan God's concept and restoring the true picture of God as revealed in Jesus? Could it be? Could it be that this is the opposite of the message that is going to unite the worldwide Christian church at the end of time? Or now.
So we know that there will be a great end time deception. We talked about that a lot last week. In Revelation 13, who brings fire down from heaven in the final crisis? The land bees. In the final crisis of Earth's history, there will be another Mount Carmel showdown. And the fire will fall on the wrong altar. Testing the faith of everyone who is not grounded in scripture and in God's character and methods. Have you ever thought about that when it says that this deception will be so great that it will deceive even the elect? If possible. But what kind of deception must that be? It's more than about a scheme. That's correct. It's more than about his feet touching the earth. But, but just when you think of it, and how we are so in tune with the news and what goes on, you know, it may not happen in our city. Yes. Watch the evening news and it happened in wherever. And it's instantaneous. Yeah. We know everything that's happening by, everywhere. Just by watching it. It is, I like that you said that, Dr. Moses. It is more than, than his feet touching the earth. It's more even than the miraculous signs and wonders. I mean, I know also in this, um, in this presentation I saw Dr. Lorene uh, present. He was taking questions at the end. And he mentioned, I mean, I know growing up in this denomination and um, there are some very firmly held beliefs in this denomination about the string of events that are going to take place and even the order of those events. What happens if the close of this Earth's history does not follow the great controversy? Mm -hmm. What if? So, Dr. Lorene said, this I didn't know, that apparently there were seven versions of the Great Controversy. I don't know if that's seven different iterations of the book, or if she described this Great Controversy seven different times in her writings. But only three of those iterations included a National Sunday Law. Four of them didn't. And if you look at what was going on in the country at that time, um, let's see, there was a bill in the U.S. Senate for a national Sunday law in the late 1800s. And that's when Ellen White started talking about it in her writings. So evidently Sunday law is not absolutely essential to the end time because she has four versions where it was not there. Also in the 1880s, the colonial powers dominated the world. So the idea of a national Sunday law was easy to imagine. It made sense. <clears throat> Today, two-thirds of the world is ruled by non-Christians. Also, Dr. Pauline said apparently they meet with legislators in Sacramento, in the state of California, 
And he said that the vast majority of legislators in California right now no longer believe that faith-based institutions have a place in their state. And they fight almost daily actions being taken to keep them from passing laws that would essentially put Loma Linda out of business. So the Sunday Law scenario in Ellen White was definitely a piece of the environment in which she lived, and if the end had come during her lifetime, it likely would have included a National Sunday Law. But is it absolutely certain, then, that there will always be a Sunday Law in end-time events? No. No. Perhaps so. I'm just raising the point. But what if we are so stuck on the Sunday Law... And it doesn't happen. Or what if the coercion and the pressure for practice is on something else? Even something good. What if it's a national Saturday law? That's going to throw some people. (laughs) What if it's outlawing abortion? Can you complete God's work by using Satan's methods. I don't think you can. But I also don't think that whatever is coerced is going to be unattractive. It's going to look really positive. Yes? Uh, Ever since Tim challenged me to provide a a reference for something I said in this class, uh, I've been looking... And, and I've got into these series of Ellen White, Ellen G. White history type mm-hmm. things. And it's like seven volumes or something, you know, different periods of life. And interestingly, last night I was, I was looking at um, the last one, which went over the fact that they specifically researched not only the references within the uh, great controversy, but they changed it, as you said just moments ago, several times mm-hmm. in order to make it more acceptable, palatable right. to the public, gotcha. especially the Roman Catholic. Gotcha. And so uh, the point taken here in our discussion is that obviously we don't need to depend on any single you know, uh, major uh, point of the doctrine, mm-hmm. you know, being Sunday law and that sort of thing. But the other side of this whole thing that I was that I was reading about is that Ellen White was absolutely adamant about wanting our message to go to the big cities, and she even refused to see the general conference president a few times when he didn't adequately prepare himself to be the presenter or to promote the work in the big cities. Uh So I'm thinking, what is it about our prophetic uh, perspective that is so exclusive to ourselves Mm -hmm. that we don't feel that we can share it adequately unless we go through this whole thing of making the, the prophecies most important feature of, quote, last day events and of our relationship to God mm-hmm. being 
you know, that this is what we have to pass through, so, so to speak, to, to be prepared to see God. Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> I find myself thinking that if only there could have been a natural law perspective and paradigm in the earlier church, how much more could we have reached people in a universal and acceptable way than what we have through all these years? I mean, you know, I've heard about so many people who come into our church because they saw these pictures of these weird beasts outside of this tent. And so, what are these people talking about? You know, they went in. But that only gets you so far. Yeah. And most of it's fear-based. And it's interesting because, for sure, when I read Mrs. White's writing now, I do see a natural law perspective woven completely through her writings. And I believe that that's what got her ostracized and caused us to veer very far away from it. Okay, so we need to wrap up. In light of a a deception this severe that is going to have fire coming down from heaven and burning the wrong altar, what can we take away from this lesson? What can we take away from studying prophecy? I'm saying, number one, I think we should be studying God's word and assimilating truth like we've never studied it before. Number two, we need to pray like we've never prayed before. And number three, we need to exercise some serious self-distrust And if this class has taught me anything, is to distrust what I thought I knew and what I thought was right. And to keep thinking and to keep studying and be an evidence-based thinker and a lover of truth. If The more confident we are that we've got it all figured out, I think the less open we are to God's leading when the time comes. What if the scenario doesn't play out exactly as portrayed in the great controversy? I think biblical prophecies are often open-ended, leaving God the freedom to shift with circumstances and with how people respond. We see a God who is deeply engaged with history and he responds to human choices. In that context, prophecy becomes more open-ended. We should not overspecify the end time details before they happen. We have several cases in history where that was done and it ended badly. Jesus said, I tell you these things ahead of time so that when it happens, you will know that I spoke the truth. Prophecy is best understood when it is fulfilled. The final principle. Prophecy was not given to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It was given to teach us how to live today. Let's bow our heads. Father, again, we are so grateful that you have gone to such lengths to reveal yourself to us, even gave us an entire book on it. Help us as we study, help us as we open our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit, and he applies everything that you have taught us. We want to be lovers of truth, we want to be evidence-based thinkers, and we want to be the generation that carries this last message of mercy to the world, the truth about your character of love. Help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.